And welcome to the Dice of Screaming Podcast. Ah! Wow. Ah, indeed. I'm Randy. I'm Mike. And together we form the gestalt known as the Dice of Screaming Podcast. So, welcome. It's uh, Thursday, which we're a little day late from Wednesday due to some scheduling conflicts. and uh, Purely work-related to this time. Oh, well, yeah. That happens, but... Uh, Glad you joined us, and uh, we've got a little bit of a good topic for you to roll around tonight with us, and uh, hopefully we make it uh, pretty clear. We had some uh, good comments on uh, the Twitterverse after I said, yeah, I wasn't going to listen to that stuff anymore. I'm going somewhere else. Some folks let us know what uh, we were doing right and what we were doing wrong, and I really appreciate the constructive criticism. Uh, yeah, we are going to start going to a more script-based format since we're kind of going a little longer. Yeah, now and, that we can afford the luxury of uh, of time, uh, yeah, and to invest in a slightly longer episode, uh, <laughs> it, it, we don't feel like we're running over time anymore. So yeah, we we can flesh things out a little more properly and not feel like yeah we're pushing the envelope of time. Yeah, and so with our advanced campaigns and characters. Uh, what we wanted to get across was primarily there's a lot of good ways to do that, and we kind of wanted to weave that in there, but uh, probably didn't hit the nail on the head as much as we wanted to. But sometimes when you're hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> so I kind of try to keep uh, loose and open-minded with that. Oh, so, uh, well, uh, only a certain amount of sex success was even going sex? to be possible. Mm. Uh, given that, I mean, let's face it, we are the smiling used car salesmen of gaming podcasts. Yeah, don't... So. don't don't look to us for much. Uh, don't expect much in the way of a warranty either. So <laughs> We just try to get a point across. Sometimes we uh, drive it home a little too hard or we wander afield. But uh, we're glad that you enjoy it still. So we're going to keep that uh, in mind. Uh, tonight, uh, we haven't had a lot of call-ins. So we're just going to move right in directly to our topic. Yeah, zero shame in our game. Uh, <laughs> I, I, there's no kimono opening, although the kimono is back. Uh, I can't do the narrow jacket anymore because I, I don't have the cat. Uh, um, the narrow jacket only seemed appropriate if I'm sitting there with Mr. Fritz, ready to destroy the world. Uh, but I can't really do that anymore. So, uh, no fluttering kimono, straight truth. Mounts, familiars, and companion animals. The unsung heroes of fantasy role-playing. Yeah, just as important as NPCs are and other sporting characters to making the campaign seem to life, there's also a plethora of... I said plethora. A plethora of many other denizens that inhabit your campaign world. Besides just monsters, there's the animals. And while we've covered about animal encounters before, one of the things that happens in a campaign, and you know this goes right back to the olden golden days, was is that you had animals... Uh, show up in the party like the Paladin's Mount. You know, a quest for one particular character to go find his or the, hers or theirs special mount that was above and beyond what was offered for normal war horses. And it was also intelligent and gifted with certain minor magical abilities. Nothing really great, but the second edition started to extrapolate on that more, and it's a concept that grows. As you play, and uh, you know, second edition starts to drift a little bit more into the Rangers having a companion from time to time, especially if they got high level. And so, certain kits and started to give you the animal companion now. And later editions, uh, the Druid began to expand this process. Yeah. Uh, of course, in the earliest incarnations, the magic user already had the familiar. But by the time you get into the third or fourth iteration of D&D, you begin to see uh, mounts, familiars, and companions becoming available to almost every po possible combination of character class, uh, which, you know, it put a real different dynamic on the game. Uh, uh, I, I don't want to say different from before because players loved having critters. They loved having... Uh, you know, interesting mounts, even back in the old days. Uh, you know, other than like the standard light riding horse. Uh, if they got their hands at high level on uh, trainable hippogriffs, you're like, yeah, we're totally flying the friendly skies. Or subdued dragons. Yeah, 
Uh, dragon Subduel was a facet of the game early on as well. Smacking the dragon with the flat of your blade. Bad dragon! Bad dragon! <laughs> uh, these were just things that were already present in the game, but which have gained a lot of traction. And not surprisingly, because once again, if players really like it, if it's part of their game experience that they enjoy, uh, it winds up finding its way into more and more uh, iterations or editions of uh, the game. Uh, deservedly so. I'm not opposed to it in any way. And I know it seems to some people like thrill and fluff. Uh, but an awesome companion is, in many cases, a game changer. And that's where our DMing questions come in here. Where, you know, how do we adjudicate this stuff? Right, and I'm going to go to the Pathfinder Player Companion Animal Archive, and one of the things right in there that they start talking about is, ask your questions to ask your DM. Does my choice of familiar mount or animal companion make sense for our campaign? Would one particular type of animal be more useful than another? Two, how does the general pub public view my animal? Is it welcome in cities or inns? How familiar are people with it? And three, how do I control my animal directly in combat the same way I control my PC, or is it controlled as an NPC under the GM's control? Those are really good questions to form right at the start of if you're going to have a character like a druid or a ranger or even a magic user or sorcerer with a companion. Now, there are some classes in Pathfinder specific, like the summoner that has an Adalon, which is part of them, or the spiritualist, which summons a phantom, and they control that. Now, we're not going to deal with the specifics of combat, but I think that just about every generation of the game has seen that summon or controlled monsters and animals always act on that player's turn. Now, some GMs may differ and have them roll for initiative separately, but sometimes it adds a little extra layer of complexity in a, a large battle. So yeah, uh, I always think that it's best to have it on there, but that's my personal opinion. You may, it's just a thought. Your mileage may vary. Yeah, it, it certainly speeds the DM's role in adjudicating uh, the order of events. Uh, if you discard uh, individual initiatives for each person's animal companions or familiars uh, and just go, hey, it goes when you go. Uh, easy, handy answer. Those who want the extra work and the extra layer of complexity, yeah, you're welcome to it. Not a... Not really a game-changer. But another game-changer of creatures that was a terrific question asked in the Pathfinder manual was how does this affect the campaign? Is this appropriate for this setting? Now, you know, say for instance, we're going to the, you know, the oasis city of uh, Shazar mm -hmm. in the middle of the desert. Uh, how does this affect my relationship with my hippocampus mount? Well, I got some bad news for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, unless you want to carry a bathtub across a thousand miles of burning sand so that uh, your your hippocampus... Uh, my flippy, my hippocampus. They call him Flipper, Flipper. <laughs> yeah, now, that's not going to work out so well. So that's a thing that before something transpires, before you issue to the player consent that this is going to be their animal companion... Uh, it worked that out with them in advance to avoid these heartbreaking moments. Right. <laughs> and, you know, for your min-maxers who want, yeah, I want a velociraptor at first level. Well, okay. You can't have a dinosaur or a small one at uh, starting level because they do advance in the Pathfinder rules. But you want to have one that's in the terrain, ideally. I mean, if you can come up with a good story, I think that deserves uh, its own reward, which is having that familiar if you can come up with a good story. But... More appropriately, you know, uh, also how people react to them. That's something we're going to cover. So getting right into it with the how to control and how to run animals and right now into other things like mounts. Now, cavaliers and paladins have a long story history with their mounts. They are part of kind of their class. And I think that almost all horses, being around horses uh, some of my life, as well as some very big barnyard animals like bulls, and uh, very large boars, um, they do have a distinct personality if they are allowed to develop. And I think that's one of the core things that even just the standard player characters 
getting a horse or two, people just look at them as a stat beast. But even let's look at uh, animal companions that aren't bonded uh, as a way to get this uh, kind of rolling a little bit more. Like things like pack animals. Like, you know, oh, uh, what was the name of the uh, pony that they had? That, uh, in the Lord of the Rings, in the Fellowship of the Ring, when they first left Rivendell. Oh my goodness! Uh, yeah, they, it had a name, and I'm, I'm. Yeah, we're grasping at it. So, but uh, the point being that it had become practically a part of the team. Uh, old Bill. Old Bill. That's right. Old Bill. And it wound up going back to town on its own. Yeah, uh, got back to Rivendell. You know, made its way to safety uh, by memory alone. Faithful pack beast, after all. No, I. Who doesn't love the background details? But. Yeah, just like Sergeant Reckless out of the Marine Corps legend. One of the reasons to. Oh, well, yeah, uh, the Marine Corps legend of uh, Sergeant Reckless. She was a uh, war pony. Yes, uh, I, we, I know that uh, there's some jokes from KODT, but she was a uh, bought as from a farmer horse, but she was related to Mongolian horses, and uh, she used to carry 105 millimeter shells on her back to rock recoilless rifle positions, thus kind of her name, Reckless Recoilless. <laughs> anyway, uh, during a battle, uh, she was wounded and carried uh, the wounded downhill from the position as well as returned with ammo, <laughs> and uh, did it all without direction. Um, they would put the wounded on her back, and she would take them to the aid station, then to clamber back around to the uh, ammo dump, be loaded back up, and go up there. Even though she was wounded, she was treated for her wounds, and then awarded a medal, and then brought back at, at expense of the Marine Corps to the United States, where she lived the rest of her life in uh, a pasture. Yeah. So, you know, horses... Go, dwarven war mule! Yep. And, you know, whether you have a pack mule or uh, a beast of burden carrying your treasure, you know, it can be one of those little NPCs that doesn't necessarily have a voice but has a personality besides, you know, getting into your, you know, you leave your packs behind with it and it roots through them. Yeah. All your uh, apples. And... There went your iron rations because uh, it was hungry, tired of grass. Uh, but one of the things that mounts do for characters that aren't necessarily... Uh, paladins or cavaliers is extend the range and speed of missions so you know key campaign factor in a scenario where your players are able to get their hands on fast moving mounts uh, it's at that transitional moment in an early campaign that they go from being the hapless newbies uh, hoofing it around the area to being able to afford you know, high-quality mounts and dash from city to city or nation to nation. Uh, and journeys no longer take weeks, but instead days. Like uh, shadow so, packs. Yeah, this, this is a major campaign shift if you're paying attention and recording issues like time uh, and travel. So, you know, not a thing to be scoffed at. Yep, and also... Uh... The care for them is also another thing. I, I wouldn't get too bogged down in it. No, normally, uh, most games have an animal handling skill of some type that can get away with from some of the nuances. But it's always good to pay attention that the fact that these mounts, especially horses, take uh, their own provision and provender with them to be able to survive because their horses are not very good at foraging. Whereas things like yaks and oxen are a little bit more hardy, but they're not as swift. Yeah, yeah. They can, and uh, even mules, while they can uh, forage a lot more, they are burrows after all. Yeah, which is a form of a, uh, well, which is where the mule comes from. But the mule is a sterile breed, but it uh, has the best of both worlds. It can forage a little bit more on its own, and it has the endurance of the donkey, but it also has the swiftness of a better swiftness and a higher intelligence. It's a well, little bit more clever. A chunk of the fun for the DM, uh, and probably only fun for the DM, uh, is not necessarily tormenting players yeah. through their mounts, but if they enjoy the advantages of swift travel and extra pack mm -hmm. bearing, then they should also endure the burden of proper animal care. And if they, they have not referenced that in a while, oops, one of them has thrown a hoof. Yeah, uh, and you know. now you reduce the half speed. Yeah, or well, not you know, but they they've thrown a shoe. Yep. 
Uh, and without a farrier handy for anywhere in miles, uh, if you now have a horse that is semi-lame and all of your movement is affected unless you leave it behind. Now, that's one of those moments where you're testing the loyalty of the party to their own mounts. Right, and it's also a good way to get them to a side quest, hint, hint. <laughs> you know, oh, there's a village over here, and now they have something that needs you to help them, so they can help you around. So, yeah. it's a good way to link in things, and here we get into the other part, is the care and feeding amounts. Now, whether you have a thing like horses, and mules, and even oxen, are fairly standard. Nobody's going to wig out when you show up on the side of a uh, remote village. Now, if you fly in suddenly with a bunch of fierce griffins... Yeah. And these griffins are carnivores, and their favorite uh, flesh is horses. <laughs> and you may recall uh, various iterations of monster manuals and uh, uh, critter guides reference certain predatory creatures as being very interested in the flesh of pack beasts. Yes. These are herd animals to them, and they are potentially tasty treats. They're, they're a source of uh, easy food. Now, if the players are wandering around in the dungeon, and they're not paying extremely close attention, you have an opportunity as a DM to hamstring them and admit that, hey, there's a fair chance that a collection of these creatures, unattended by any humans, are a tempting target. And not out of just hostility to the players, but... Let's... Yeah, they're kind of the price of admission. It's, yeah. It requires a little bit of forethought, how to care for them. Now, on the other hand, uh, what you mentioned there was especially interesting. How does a town react to, say, for instance, you know... Uh, <laughs> Team Awesome, the Wyvern Riders. Yeah, you know, if your Wyverns fly in. You know, five of those land in the center of town. You know what? You're probably not going to get invited back. Yeah, especially if they sting the uh, town guard who <laughs> raises their weapon in defense because they're so shocked at the sudden appearance. Now, again, this can be a little bit of uh, sour grapes for players. Like, well, why do we always get troubled when we bring our mounts into town? Well, because they ate half of the community's livestock. <laughs> they're a little peeved about that so that's something to keep in mind as well um certain other ones like uh oh pegasi and uh oh now there's a much more friendly reaction or even an intelligent one like uh, oh geez i had a, a character riding around with a shadu mm. let it write it on the back uh for one part of my campaign in a uh skidoo yeah yeah, so, um, back on track, yes, the Shadu uh, was an intelligent creature and could speak for itself, obviously, and was just letting this character ride as a convenience, convenience yeah. and, a, and a favor to it, because they were on a similar quest. It was still strange to many people, but, you know, the, it also offered to heal, because it had clerical abilities. So, you know, that's a different thing, too, but... Other things like even unicorns could get uh, evil characters involved because, oh, the blood of a unicorn or the horn of a unicorn is a rare spell component used for nefarious deeds. Yeah, they're a target. Yep. And, and if they're traveling into civilization instead of incredibly secluded glades, uh, yeah, that does raise eyebrows amongst the evildoers of the world. Yeah, the dark-hearted ones will not uh, look at them so favorably. So that's another thing, too. And you're, again, not trying to penalize players for it, but it creates adventure and opportunities to role-play and interact with the world. Is yeah. What we're really getting at it. That's not... always a win, okay? Right. Everything that adds complexity, that, that gives you opportunities to pencil in adventures and quests, oh my gosh, it's just literally a bundle of win. Now, so let's get back to the druid with the Velociraptor companion. Now, ah. here's a very savage beast. Yeah, if the druid tells you to lick his pet toad, just say no. Um, yeah, it's probably not going to be welcome to stay in the inn, especially when it bit the head of one of the innkeeper's daughters off. Yeah, yeah, all right. Because uh, they are kind of fierce. I don't understand why nobody likes Mr. Bitey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, all right. Clever girl isn't welcome everywhere. Oh, clever girl. Yeah. Uh, Jurassic Park reference. Um, anyway... Uh, but, you know, that, that's something also to consider when you take an animal companion from player point of view. It's like, how much uh, 
extra gold are we going to have to shell out to provide food and lodging for your extremely violent pet? Now, something like a bear or even a dog uh, for a ranger or a druid or even wolves aren't going to really raise that many eyebrows. They're still going to get some, you can't let that bear in here because the bear will go up and do what bears do. Eat things. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, what do they do in the woods? Uh, well, the same thing they do in the inn if you don't let them outside. Uh, yeah, it it presents logistical problems because let's face it, most household habitations are not built to invite in large animals. Eight hundred pound furry critter. Yeah, you know if you're if you're talking like a you got a Kodiak grizzly for a pet. Yeah. Uh, this is not going to go over well. I mean, first, that's not an environment in which they're entirely comfortable to begin with. So but, having a touchy, moody, angry, 800-pound Kodiak grizzly wandering through town with an addle-pated druid who, you know, he's just doing his thing, man. Well, shut the heck up, Grizzly Adams. <laughs> yeah. yeah, at least Grizzly Adams had the uh, foresight to leave Ben outside sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> pipe down. Your beard bees are stinging the paying customers. Uh, <laughs> no, no I, I'm going to do that to you, dude. Yeah, I, I, it's going to happen. I'm going to play uh, a druid. I'm going to I'm going to break my druid cherry, and I'm going to play a druid. You've and, already played a druid, and his name is going to be Benny. Uh huh. And instead of an animal companion, he's going to have a swarm of bees in his beard. All right. And when people attack him, he'll sick his beard bees on them. <sighs> Uh, he'll make his living entirely by, by selling natural remedies on the edge of town. And uh, he doesn't believe in bathing, unless it rains on him. But whether or not you're having a <laughs> troublesome player with an, an odd assortment of bees in their beard, or just an, a really big advanced-sized bear, because that bear gets real big at uh, third, I think at 8th uh, level. Yeah, that bear goes up a size category in Pathfinder, so it gets pretty uh, cumbersome to bring yeah. around in small areas. These are the penalties that come along with the benefits. I mean, great yeah. in the dungeon, kind of a problem in the city. So making characters make specific arrangements for the care or maintenance of these animals uh, that are their companions and allies... Uh, is not too much to ask. If no. they want all the benefits, they should probably be paying attention to the little details that make it possible to enjoy them. Right, and this is probably why most druids prefer to stay outside. Yeah. Um, which you can completely understand. Um, also, some fantasy cities might have provisions that for large likes exotic hippies. mounts or, or companions. That and nobody likes hippies. Well, okay. Fair enough, but uh, you know, there's also places that you could have inside a fantasy city that would have... Areas already pre-designated for the storage and facilitation of such large beasts. Or even an actual druidic grove. Right, inside a, the city. That Yeah, a, a sacred space inside the city that uh, visiting druids can make use of. And you know, like here's a place where their animals exist in relative sublime peace alongside other animals. You know, predator and prey alike doesn't matter. And inside the grove, everything is kosher. Right. You but can going back to that idea earlier of going into a desert campaign, if you had a, pack, a pair of hyenas with you, that still might raise a few eyebrows even to people native to the land, but once the druid proves themselves as not only the keepers of them, but also that they are companions and equals, should be treated with respect, others will begin to understand that. I also had, uh, in the same campaign, another druid take a horse companion. Interesting. And, uh, yeah, so rather than getting bigger, I just gave it more, uh, a few more uh, abilities. More smarts, more tricks, more endurance. Oh, yeah, they get very intelligent after a while. But uh, even in uh, some of the games, Pathfinder and 5th Edition, you can awaken your companion and it becomes less of a animal and more of a fully fleshed out player character or NPC type with class and all that sort of thing. So that's not something else to keep in mind. Um, as the game goes along, it's more of a high-level thing than it is a starter. But even just having things like uh, wolves or bears where people are used to seeing them can create conditions wherein the animal interacts with its more natural inclinations when not under the care of the ranger or druid specifically. 
Yeah, on and their so, own, they just revert back to being the animal that they are. And, uh, you know, that, that may not mesh well with a civilized setting. And so that can create some problems. But again, you don't want to take it too far. You don't want to public punish a player for it. Unless, of course, they're completely egregious. But we'll get into familiars now. Now, here's where the other part is. Is that familiars usually take a very small animal like a cat or even a raven or owl. Oh, yeah, a frog. Uh, yep. You know, the bat. Uh, I believe from some editions, a weasel. Oh, yeah, like one. the familiar folio. I mean, what is it? Weasel Fierce. There's even, jeez, uh, let's open it up here. Let's see what they give us. Hmm. Yes, Pathfinder's familiar folio has an a enormous skunk. assortment. Uh, <laughs> Stinky the skunk. Yeah. <laughs> Driving yeah. off your enemies for you. Like, never mind. Never mind. A I, wallaby. I was going to, to... Wait a minute. Wallaby? Wallaby, yeah. Let's oh, awesome. It. You can have your Aussie character. This is my trained war wallaby. Yeah. Back off. But my favorite is the peacock. Really? Uh, yeah, I like having a peacock. Well, all right, that's not exactly one for hiding undercover. No, but, uh, they're darn noisy. But if you're doing an all-in-the-city uh, campaign where it's you know, like all about uh, influence and prestige and social status and things like that, I, I can totally see a peacock familiar being an asset because those yeah. were often pets amongst the nobility. Exactly. A noble sorcerer or wizard would do well to have a peacock as a pet because, first of all, they're flashy. And, well, besides noisy, they also are very prestigious. Not to mention, they provide quills for your sure, scroll. and they also... No, uh, and hats. But they do. Uh, the yes. bard keeps taking the dropped feathers and sticking them in his hat. Yes. Easily. But uh, that's another thing about the familiar. This is an early game creature. Yeah. That, uh, it changes the dynamic for the mage very early in the game. Uh, right out of the gate, oftentimes first level, sometimes within a level or so of that. Now, a familiar, aside from providing a small boost to hit points right out of the gate, mm -hmm. uh, thereby making the mage slightly more survivable as a low-level class, uh, also places a certain vulnerability that... Here you have this creature that you have a symbiotic relationship with, and if anything happens to it, that also happens to you. Those hit points go bye-bye. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it's one of those things DMs have exploited for years. Like, you really want to hose the mage, kill the familiar. Uh, and I generally only do this if they put the familiar in great danger, uh, or if their, their own uh, personal space has been the victim of a area of effect spell. Like, if you were caught in a fireball, you and your familiar are about to get shaked and baked. Now, beyond that, I tend to let people's familiars alone unless they use them as scouts, and that brings me to the point of flying familiars. Yes, and that's, yeah, that's where it's going to go next, is certain familiars, especially the, the special ones, the ones where you would roll a 15 or something. You would get a pseudo-dragon or an imp or, you know... Brownie. Even a brownie, yeah. I'm a brownie. And, uh, you know, they are very high, They're very magical, and uh, they have a lot of abilities that come with them. Um, pretty much an essential thing is that uh, most of the ones with wings provide a different... Content, or a... Uh, scope to their abilities and change the scope of the game right away because having a flying familiar, even just like a raven and being able to see through its eyes. Yeah, this is a eye-in-the-sky spy and it lends an advantage tactically to the players that you may want to be cautious about letting in or at least be mindful that if you're just going to follow the, the letter of the law and whatever was rolled is rolled and they got a flying familiar, all right, fine, I'll deal with it. It's at that point that you have to start making ready uh, that all of your encounters and adventures in the foreseeable future will involve uh, the players being able to at least have a little sneak peek from above. So be ready for it. It will happen because players will do it. They will follow through and use every talent at their disposal to 
reduce risk to themselves, and you can't really blame them for doing that. That's being a smart player. Right, and you don't want to punish them for having abilities and yeah. using them. But a familiar is a little different than, say, like a ranger having an eagle or a druid uh, using an animal, uh, charm animal and having a raven follow them around for information for a while. The intimate sense between the familiar and the wizard or spellcaster is very powerful. Now, certain characters like witches have a very powerful bond with their familiar, and, of course, they're not going to risk them. And that's the big uh, point that you want to make here, is that if you throw your familiar into danger, harm's way to scout out first, be prepared to deal with that as a player and as a DM. Like Mike said, you got to be mindful of it. You don't have to penalize them, but just be mindful. And if they overstep and sometimes start abusing it, it's good to give them a couple warnings with somebody not starts noticing if this eagle or uh, raven is following them constantly. A group of gnolls or bandits could start to keen in on it and retaliate. Yeah, we got eye in the sky. Put them out. You know, boom. nothing like a flight of arrows. Uh. Right, and then, you know, you change the scope of the game back to normal uh, without having the eye in the sky. But, again, not to punish players. I mean, you can kind of also apply this a little bit to Shadowrun and some cyberpunk games with drones and other... Yeah, if people know that this is a risk to them, I mean, if it's assumed that in this fantasy realm uh, that sometimes flying creatures can be spies for mages and things like that, then you can expect a certain amount of apprehension. Right. Uh, that and... Or the actions that uh, creatures, organized creatures, take to protect themselves from being spied on from above. Because they know that's a thing that can happen. So at least when dealing with intelligent creatures, uh, lend them the credibility that you, know, you give to player characters. If the player characters are smart enough to do this and know this, then likewise, certain of the cleverer monsters are also going to be cunning enough to go, ah, uh, let's have a lean-to that they can't see into. Uh, and that's where our, our, our spy is. Uh, or let's, you know, let's carefully uh, cover up the entrance to our cave so that we only slip out carefully through some, uh, you know, skins that have been laid over it to, to look like brush. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Disguising things and requiring perception checks or uh, uh, spot checks to uh, find things works out pretty well. Uh, to make it so that there's always a chance that you're familiar or whatever you have it can miss something. Now, also, a lot of the games have started to limit what your animal companions can do by the tricks and... Uh, little deeds that they can perform from your animal handling and training. But you can also take that from normal beasts, too. Certain uh, animals and critters, especially with fantasy fiction, you know, strange, exotic beasts from elsewhere, like tigers and gorillas, can be chained. Beard bees, attack! Yeah, yeah can be uh, trained, but the normal animal handler, or <laughs> animal trainer, beast master, if you want to get into that, and make them uh, more docile for the owner, and still aggressive towards others that would invade their territory, as we've often seen. But that's a trope that's pretty standard, and I would also encourage the use of that. Players may also take advantage of that as well. But also just having pets. Now this is the last part here, is where, well, I'll let Mike talk about his character having a pet ocelot. <laughs> and the things that uh, were done with that. <laughs> Ah, now, all right, uh, I'm, I'm going to give the true origin story. A lot of people thought that uh, I was exclusively making an archer reference when my character demanded uh, to have an ocelot. That's not entirely true. Archer had not yet hit the air when I insisted on, like, my character purchases an ocelot. Uh, Yoru the fighter wanted to make a big splash in town every time he went out because... Uh, it was not terribly bright, but he believed that, you know, that image cultivated by wealthy persons uh, was the kind of thing he should emulate. That, you know, if I'm going to show people that I am wealthy and that I am successful, then I must ride in a palanquin. Uh, and 
I, I should have an ocelot, uh, because that's exotic and therefore shows that I am rich. Uh, well, I insisted that it was a ocelot that had been tinctured, uh, or its fur had been dyed, and I had a tinctured ocelot on a leash. This was actually a quote from the song Andy's Chest by Lou Reed, right. which was an homage to his mentor and friend, Andy Warhol. Uh, and the line went, you know, instead of a tinctured ocelot on a leash, I'd rather be a kite and be tied to the end of your string and flying in the air, babe, at night. So that is where I got the notion. Randy was then obligated to put up with me insisting that I had to go to a large city, I believe it was Greyhawk City, mm. and promptly buy an ocelot and have it tinctured and kept on a leash. He then required of me that I get an animal handler uh, professionally to handle the ocelot because I knew nothing about ocelots, and it peed all over my expensive palanquin. <laughs> and shredded the pillows. Uh, which I had so painstakingly purchased as part of my cultivated, wealthy image. Yeah, and then uh, when he uh, layered up in an inn, and we had a um, kind of sidetrack adventure show up in the middle of the uh, city stay with uh, some thieves, um, the ocelot was left alone for two days oh, Yeah, in the inn room. And boy, like, the repair bills from that. It was like me Auschwitz in there. 2,000 gold pieces? Yeah, man, those beds, you know, that thing, you just tore it up. Yeah, yeah, poor Babu. Or, well, after Archer had came, come out, uh, it was about I the then same. renamed him Buyer's Remorse. Buyer's Remorse, yes. <laughs> Buyer's Remorse. Buyer's Remorse, the ocelot. <laughs> uh, but you can have a great variety of pets, even just a mascot of a, a mongrel dog that shows up follows your mercenary company around from dungeon to dungeon but barks at the approach of Knowles. You know, that can be a, a great little pet. Yeah. And it's just a little bit of a flavor text and a snap block. But it adds a lot of depth to your campaign, just like horses having distinct personalities. There's several charts that I like to refer to. There's a couple in uh, Pathfinder, but also there's an old one from RuneQuest I like to use that uh, has various traits of animals. And uh, speaking of weird mounts, we'll just uh, skip over to... Glorantha and RuneQuest, now they have, horses are rather rare in uh, RuneQuest. And so there's a great variety of other riding beasts, including yeah. zebras and even cats, great cats. And, uh, I mean, you know, like your saber-toothed cats, bison and others. Saber-toothed, awesome! Yeah, saber-toothed, bite your face off! Well, just like with the Cavalier, the sky's the limit. The Gnome Cavalier riding a... Fierce Mountain Goat in the dungeon uh, was a particularly good idea for overcoming. Like, you can't bring your dun uh, your mount or your class abilities in because it's too darn big to navigate the corridors. Well, <laughs> this was a bad idea. It was a good idea because, boy, <laughs> could that goat jump and charge. And All right, that little gnome that. cavalier getting her level and charge damage. Whoa. Whoa, uh, bonus charge damage. All right, I see what you're going for. Yeah, great great uh, use of circumventing the rules. So that's another way that you can make it pay off. Sometimes the smaller the mounts and animals seem to get along better. The larger and also more awesome. <laughs> you know, all the way up to the T-Rex. But, uh, you know, <laughs> the gnome riding the woolly mammoth through an undead horde. Wow, when did... Yeah. Which campaign was well, that? That was uh, Jade Regent. They were on the top of the world, the crown of the world, and they were surrounded by an undead horde. And um, the druid summoned a woolly rhino. <laughs> that and is just great. trampled everything in her path. Oh, awesome. Well played. I, I wish I'd been there to see that, because that's, that's an entertaining Yeah, I couldn't quite get up to the mammoth, but woolly rhino, still there. All right. And that's one that, uh, you know, I would totally see... Appropriate for a uh, appropriate for setting. For an Arctic uh, druid could also have a walrus, which, well, you know, not going to do much, but uh, outside of the water. <laughs> but you know, a ferocious opponent in the water and on the shore. Well, sure, especially deadly should you be plagued by uh, evil penguins. Yeah. 
Oh, no, that said, uh, mounts, animal companions, pets, familiars, uh, they add a lot of spikes to the game. Players love them. It is a little more work for the DM, but it's totally worth the sacrifice when you consider the, the bonuses of crazy things that can happen, uh, side quests, and extra responsibilities that can be placed upon the players. I, man, it's a lot of spice, a lot of, a lot of extra material that brings the game to life, and always has, from the beginning to now. Yeah, like the Clever Mount, um, High Mountain Goat, uh, Lucky Hound, a Trade Camel, and even a Sly Warthog. Now, hey, to give you an example, I mean, how many of the old Western, uh, like, serial TV shows, you know, where the, the cowboys got the clever horse that knows how to unlatch a door? And, yep. You are know, like, oh, he's going to need the keys. Oh, the horse unlatches the door, walks in, picks up the keys, carries them over to the cage, and puts them right in his hand. Wow, that's a great mount, you know. Comes when you whistle, you know, just... Those tricks and things like that have been homaged in the game as being equally plausible uh, for uh, both paladins and otherwise. It doesn't take a super intelligent mount to do it. Nope, and just like with the trade camel that knows the paths to water. Oh, yeah. Instinctively. Well, uh, if you're in that desert campaign we spoke of, there's a mount that is worth its weight in gold. Yep, and the lucky hound who always is right there... Bark right at the right time or give you a, that little brief opening of in a combat situation by biting at the heels or uh, giving a savage bite right at the right moment oh. or barking before an attack is imminent. Yeah, sitting there by the campfire, ears out, listening, uh, and ready to wake the party in the event. I, hey, this is an alarm spell that came for free. All you had to do was feed it the share of rations, you know. <laughs> Oh, man, pets rock, which is why people in the real world have so many of them. Yeah, which you can always hear them wandering around here. Raven, our dog, just, uh, <laughs> she likes by. to uh, listen uh, while we're talking, likes to uh, see what we're on about. <laughs> so she yeah. investigates here, clacking around. But, uh, yeah, the Fritz used to come in and listen, but, uh, yeah. uh now the the Fritz has crossed the Rainbow Bridge to Kitty Valhalla. So yeah, one last no time. One no more narrow jacket for Mike. It's back to the kimono. Yeah, but you know, in, no matter what uh, game you're playing in, um, whether it's RuneQuest, Pathfinder, D and D, there's always room for an animal companion to show up, and there's lots of ways that they can come into the game, whether through character abilities, classes, or just. Uh, through uh, luck and virtue of completing quests or going after one. Always be wary of letting in players roughshod and ignore the fact that their animal companion is just another facet of their character and doesn't require any game player maintenance. Well, what do you feed your horse? Well, uh, he eats grass. Well, that's a good way for get a oh, stomachache. He foundered. <laughs> yep. Oh, man, it looks like uh, the whole party is going to stop and spend time caring for their mounts, trying to, like, send the yeah. druid and the ranger out to go gather some other food for them. And as long as characters are mindful of it, I wouldn't make it a big deal, because most characters who have a couple ranks and handle animal know how to take care of things, and I guess that maybe me and Mike do, by virtue of being raised in rural conditions around various beasts. But... It helps. It helps, but also, like, even things like camels and goats, which not many people are familiar with offhand, have a very distinct personality. And as many people look at camels as kind of dumb and noisome beasts, and yes, they can, they can spit and they can kick, they can be very ornery, they are reliable for a reason. They have been kept and trained for centuries by humans, and it would make sense that in a fantasy game, they would also receive the same treatment from other races as well as just humankind. Fair enough that. So, you know, you have some ideas that you can go with and develop other creatures. Like in um, RuneQuest, they have Tusk Riders, which are kind of these angry uh, humanoid creatures. Like, I would say, kind of akin to orcs, but they're... They always ride these massive war hogs, and man, are they... Tusken Raiders. Oh, they are. They are some formidable opponents. You do not mess lightly with Tusk Raider war party. Yipes. Oh, 
good old RuneQuest, full of cool stuff. Yep. No, I uh, I do want to pause for one moment as we oh, draw well, to close. Us as well as Goblins with Wolves. Oh, yes. Classic. I, I, I wanted to just go a little bit further on the subject of when and where to nerf. Because we talked about not letting players run roughshod. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is such a circumstance as a particular campaign or a particular adventure uh, being made incredibly awkward or that much more difficult by, well, for the DM, uh, by players having an enormous advantage in terms of challenge rating because the combined might of five players and five mount slash companion slash familiars uh, becomes more than the DM initially bargained for. Yeah. Now, if you feel very strongly that these creatures wouldn't be suitable in that location, there are a few dirty DM tricks to employ. And I recommend one of them being the... uh, like magical entrance only that literally separates the characters from their critters that literally say uh, only those who have an actual class can walk through this magical portal and they're teleported into the place. That's a dirty trick and you can't use it every single time. But if you really feel like this is, you've got to bring this adventure a notch down, uh, have a barrier like that or a point of access that is impossible for them to pass their other creatures. Yeah, through. I think there's also like a lot of rules like uh, most animals won't attack undead. You have to specific, even uh, ranger and druid companions will not attack them unless they've been specifically trained. They will cower or remain uh, in a only guard. Yeah. Now, only attacked if attacked and then will flee at the first opportunity. If you've got uh, characters who are rendered OP and you feel like they're, you know, really busting up the party, uh, the other solution without nerfing them is you're going to have to bump that challenge rating up a notch or two. Yeah. You know, you're going to have to add uh, something to your enemies that gives them a similar advantage, like if they are dealing with intelligent enemies. Uh, yeah, in the undead situation, if you have a white that's uh, particularly, you know, give him a couple boosts in the level, uh, hit dice, advance him up a notch, and then give him a couple, uh, or it, a couple of companions, maybe even a couple sly ghouls sneaking about, or some skeletons or zombies in number. Uh, likewise, um, animal companions or trained guardians, like, uh, you know, uh, carnivorous apes, uh, mm-hmm. a useful and purchasable and trainable uh, foe that your enemy might have available to them. Uh, Likewise, they too are capable of getting their hands on a bear. If I recall correctly, it was a polar bear in the Frost Giants. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, these oh, hell, things... they had a frickin' Ramorez hanging outside. Oh, yeah, all right, that was that was no no. Down right. in that glacial roof. Don't go down there lightly. <laughs> Even the frost giants were like, no, we don't go down there. No, no, not safe. Now, the, the point being that you can adjust uh, just enough to bump the challenge rating up by adding distractions, uh, additional side creatures, that are also a benefit to the opponents you're throwing at the party. Uh, don't neglect that opportunity, because yeah. then you can let the party keep these awesome things that are totally enjoyable and well worth having in the game without letting yourself get flattened uh, as the DM every week. Yeah, I'd give the hobgoblins a pair of very loyal and well-trained carnivorous apes that they uh, treat well enough and give plenty of prey to. Yeah, featured in the module uh, A2. Right. Uh, They had carnivorous apes that were uh, well-trained and were taken on patrol and would use their keener sense of smell to try to detect uh, intruders, which put the players at risk. You can also use it for the monsters, turn around, and also, as I alluded to earlier about with Shadowrun, uh, there's character class, the Rigger, which is capable of bringing drones and others vehicles into the game and encounters 
that can also change the scope and dynamic. And it's part of the character and also part of the player investment into that character. So don't nerf them arbitrarily or willy-nilly just simply because you don't like them. Work with your players and tell them what's up. And most of the time, your players will react accordingly. Or if not, just kill them all and uh, rocks fall and you all die. Oh, and if they're too callow to an intelligent pet, uh, to an intelligent familiar pet, mount or otherwise, you can always have that awesome Blade Runner moment where it turns on it. Father, I want more life. (laughs) Yeah, well... Yeah, uh, you know, don't be afraid to chasten players who show no appreciation or respect for the things that uh, they, they've got. If they're cruel or throw things into danger without a second to care, uh, that might bite him in the butt someday. Yeah. So, we've, hopefully that we've opened up some new ideas and avenues of approach for you. And that also, was the goal. You know, throw around the old uh, idea ball and just see what pops out. We kicked around some ideas, so I really liked to uh, talk about that and also some uh, views into other games. Yeah. I'm still proud of Beard B's attack. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad that uh, you like the Tusk uh, Riders from... Uh, from oh, Blitz. very. Yeah, we'll have to run through that someday. Anyhow, um, I think um, that'll do it for us tonight and, uh, of course, this week. So we'll be coming at you next week with some more stuff. And uh, hopefully you'll be having a good week. So stay safe and sane out there. Yeah. And as always, remember that you can get a hold of us on our Facebook page on the Dice of Screaming. So if you like what you hear or you have any questions, even topics you'd like us to talk about, let us know there in the comments section. Also, uh, you can leave us a like there, and we like that. And uh, We have not entirely abandoned Twitter, where I can be found periodically. No, we haven't abandoned it. I, I did like the fact that when I did say that, a few of you did come forward and say, hey, you know, I appreciate it. But, you know, that's that's nice to hear from people, and that's... You know, it really uh, made my day, so I appreciate that. And uh, also, uh, you can take that uh, subscribe button very carefully and very gently. Uh, guide it to um, the uh, button and uh, hit it very, very calmly. It, it's been through a lot lately, so we'd like to reiterate that nerves are a little rough. So just be uh, tenderly, just touch it, and uh, you can get notifications when we put up a new podcast. So Yes, gingerly gingerly touch it uh, using a uh, clean cloth uh, in between your finger uh, because yep. it's kind of like the princess in the pea. I mean, yeah, you know, you, you, don't bruise, you don't want to bruise it. Yeah, so you can also download the ink app and get instant notifications through that. So with that, I think we are done for the night. And so we wish you adieu and may, may the, the dice always roll in your favor. favor. We're out. See ya.